this is kind of strange again for another time. Last week I had a chance to talk to a, a guy named Eric Corgano, who is an online uh, golf instructor, instructor, Instagram guy, YouTube guy. And uh, it was the first time I've ever recorded any interviews without Tim. And an opportunity has presented itself, golf nerds, to do it again uh, because of the circumstances. My brother David, a psychologist, uh, visiting the house, and we're hanging out. And I thought we were going to record with Tim today. It didn't happen. So we have a chance to talk to David Glassman, who I've known for the better part of uh, nearly 60 years. <laughs> I've known him all my life because, of course, he is my brother. He's golf spiritual leader's brother, which I think is a lot of pressure. That is a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure for uh, just a regular guy. Um, you know, I, I think I've mentioned on this show a time or two that I learned the game from our father, Lou Glassman. In fact, uh, anytime uh, a teacher works with me or has worked with me over the last 40 years, they always remark about my grip. Mm -hmm. And uh, you learned it from the same guy. Your grip is really, you have a great golf grip. Uh, amongst the few great things that happened in my golf swing. But did, did he ever sort of, I can never remember, did, did our father sort of take us aside and was it a formal thing or did we just learn through osmosis? I, I think more through osmosis. I mean, what I remember is sitting in the backyard, uh, he was doing pitches across yeah. about 30, 40 feet. And we were catching, or I was catching golf balls like something was throwing a baseball. Like a, I used to remember, I, I would catch. Sometimes he would hit them to me, and I had a baseball club. Yeah, I just thought everybody golfed like that. <laughs> exactly. But I, you know, I just recall, like you know, I wasn't. I, I had an interlocking grip when I started as a kid, like a lot of kids do. I, I didn't change it until my thirties. But I'm pretty sure um, we were lucky enough to have somebody put our hands on a golf club correctly. Yes. It's almost like learning a foreign language before you're, you know, four or five years old. You just you just know it. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of people struggle, and and you know, it's like the first time I met this old pro named Joe Rice at the National, and he saw me swing for the first time. He said, uh, "Yeah, I like your grip." I said, "Thanks." He goes, "That's page one," and it is. It's you, you need the foundation, mm -hmm. like a lot of things in the motion, because if you hold it incorrectly. For the most part, you're going to spend your life trying to make a correction in your downswing somewhere, etc. Mm -hmm. But you, you, how about our brother Stephen? Is his grip as good as yours? Because you have a grip. I, I know he's listening. Yeah, I'm trying yeah. to remember if I, I can tell you about his grip. He, he and I hit some golf balls this summer. Didn't didn't play. I think he's got a good grip. I mean, he. You know, I I, I know I, I would say I'm maybe a better player, but I. Oh I, no, I, not I not, not I, maybe. I can't justify yeah, okay. uh, too much of that. You're talking about our father. Um, do you remember hitting golf balls in the living room, the wiffle ball? Uh, no. So here's a memory, uh, and you couldn't get away with this in the in, a, in the current age, but he would hit so many golf balls in the living room. Wiffle ball off the carpet. The carpet was worn out. Really? I mean, what? Who who could get away with that these days? You know, I do remember him because we had that mirror above the couch. Right. I remember him looking at his swing. You, you know, one of the things that it was a good and bad, you know, sort of a gift from our father is that he was a, he was one of those people in the late sixties, early seventies that was really into golf instruction. Yes, it was an obsession of his, like Toski. Like Toski, like 
Uh, that guy that worked with Nicholas early on, a guy named uh, can't remember, doesn't matter. Right. Anyway, it, it spurred a interest in in myself, and I think you as well. You, you're a student of the game. Mm-hmm. You're an avid player. You're, um, I mentioned off the beginning that you're a psychologist. Was one of the reasons I wanted to have a chat with you is because I know you listen to the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had conversations about when Tim and I spoke with Ellen Langer or Michael Hebron, uh, Carl Morris, and you hear these people, and I'm always curious through the through a prism of what you do for a living, and you might describe that in a second. How how you what you hear from our show and what you see in the world of golf that has applications to your business um i I was thinking about that and i uh, you had langer on uh i I, so the work i do is mainly with groups and and lately i've been doing a lot of work around safety and quality leadership so i'm leading seminars at big industrial sites uh for people who are managers middle manager types uh dealing with uh issues of worker safety so so it's one of the things i do and, and, and part of what we do is get individual managers, supervisors, et cetera, to learn how to speak, right, to learn how to uh, do presentations, how to speak to workers. And, and every once in a while, metaphors I hear on this show end up using in the classroom. So the one of the ones that, you know, I, I don't know if I heard it from you on the show or just you, that phrase, take your turn, for instance. Yeah, when it's your turn, take, yeah. when, when it's, it's your, your turn, turn, take your, your turn. turn. So if you're coaching somebody to give a talk, uh, you know, people are so uh, quick to want to get off stage. Mm. And I find myself, take, take your turn. I, I find myself using golf metaphors when I want to make the distinction between what coaching looks like and what supervision looks like. So, so here's an example. Um, you said to me once, watching me swing, something like, you look like a frenzied monkey. <laughs> I did. That's, no, I, I, that sounds like something somebody else might have said. But you did say that. So I said, me. you swing like a frenzied monkey? That day I certainly God did. damn it. But the difference is, so coaching is you hear somebody say you look like a frenzied monkey and you smile. And, and you smile because it's a coaching relationship. The same, the same kind of phrase coming from a, a supervisory mindset, you know, where the supervisor says, uh, you know, Howard, come into my office, shut the door, I've got some feedback. You know, everybody's sphincters tighten up. You don't want to hear it. So there's something about golf coaching or golfing that illustrates what a coaching relationship is. The thing we love as golfers is to hear stuff. And we don't we don't have that same relationship at work. So you can use those golfing analogies with people, and they and they get it. That's so knowing what you do, coaching people in you know sort of high level um, situations. How uh, as a golfer, right? And as somebody that you know again through a prism of a, a lifetime of psychology, what do you see and perceive as some of the you know, the sort of impediments for improvement, and not only in your own game, but in others and your observations. What holds us back? Um, well, I, I think that there, there's two, two things. Um, to learn something, you have to have a sense of possibility. The problem about having a sense of possibility, you don't know when you don't have it. So, so here's an example I use in my work. You know, you ask people in a room, how many people here play guitar? Like one person puts up their hand. 
and then you ask people, why don't you play? And, and, and people give you a bunch of stories that, that sound to my ear like excuses. Then you ask people, why don't you uh, play piano? And one or two people do, the rest don't. And you ask, why not? And, and people will tell you a story, but what they don't see, what isn't revealed, is that it doesn't occur to them that playing piano is possible. So here, here's the punchline I'll use, and I'll get to golf. Then you ask people, how many people here juggle? Okay, I've done this before. One person. How many people would love to juggle? Everybody. The question is, why don't you? And, and for the most part, people don't think it's a domain of learning. This is going to get a punchline soon. You take your time. So, you so, so you don't I need th- to worry about okay, it. Okay, so, so what I do then is teach somebody in the room to juggle. And then in 20 minutes, everybody's juggling. And I tell the story, and this is a bit of a fable, but I tell the story that I came back from Europe able to juggle. And then in very short order, my two brothers learned to juggle <laughs> exactly. because they figured if David if David, <laughs> if right. David can juggle, it can't be hard. If I may interject, though, that's a very good point, and I can see where you're going as it relates to golf because – you know, a lot of times and at high levels, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, the story of Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas growing up. And when Jordan Spieth, who had that great year in 2015, Justin Thomas basically thought, well, wait a second, I've been beating that guy and he's been beating me since we were kids. So now I see it as a possibility for myself. Well, and but let me speak like a 15 handicap on a, on a good day. Uh, most people who golf at my level, golf, enjoy it, but don't think getting better is a matter of intention. They, they or a possibility. Of, or a possibility. They, they, well, if you don't see the possibility, you can't do it. And, and part of, of, of coaching is, I mean, you can s- separate instruction from sort of the psychological part of coaching. So the instruction is how to put your hand on the grip. The psychological part is seeing the possibility that learning could get you somewhere and most people are completely accepting of their games and they're in what i've used this word before with you tranquilized resignation they don't see the possibility but it doesn't bug them right on on bad days we're in something worse we're in we're we're resentful so we're pissed off and resigned so not only do you see no possibility you you hate yourself mm-hmm. right and and so all of that comes out in golf it, it's perfectly analogous to what happens in the world right yeah and i think what's interesting doing this show and the type of people that listen to it is i at first i thought oh there's just a small group of us that sort of think this way but as i've been doing this work more and more and running into golfers that that sort of on the sly will take me aside and go, hey, I heard the podcast. You know, I kind of feel the same way, especially men. I had this experience last week when I was on this club link trip. One night, there's 12 of us, you know, having the hot, you know the wings and beers. And the guy sitting next to me, I didn't really know him that well. Angelo is his name. He says, hey, you know, that podcast, I listen to it all the time. And all of a sudden, we're now having this deep conversation about, you know, how he feels about himself as a person sometimes on the golf course. And for people who don't golf and just think it's a sport like any other, because of the nature of the game, I don't need this to explain this again, but, you know, there's a thing we say often, you know, golf doesn't build character, reveals it. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the addendum to that for me most recently is this. We all have parts of ourselves that we hide away from everyone else. You know, the, the tr- you know, and part of falling in love with somebody is to reveal a little bit of who you really are, and they say that's okay. Mm-hmm. But what I think about golf is it, it doesn't let you hide yourself. 
what it reveals is who you really are because you can't help it. Yes. You, you, it, it brings up, from what you were just saying, it brings up all these things of resentment, and you start to hate yourself in a way you would never see if you and I went and played a little squash. Well, the, the subtlety, the tension in the body, so you know, you have that connection between thought to physiology. Uh, what you're thinking always gets reflected in your physiology. And when you're swinging a club at X hundred, you know, 82 miles, <laughs> whatever, I'm going to make no, that's not fair because listen, nerds, David hits it really, really well. He swings it hard. He's he, he got a, you probably get a hundred mile an hour driver swing ish. Yeah. Whatever the speed is, but it's fast enough that small variation shows up as, you know, 20 year, 20 yards off the fairway. It, it is very much a thermometer to the soul. I love that. I just it, made that up. It's beautiful. <laughs> Patent pending. Patent. It is a thermometer for the soul. It, it, that's what I mean. You know, in our soul, we have an identity that we are able to sometimes cover up. But in the, in the moment of golf, in the spirit of the game, it, it wounds us at a soulful level in a way that nothing else does in my life. Yeah. You, know, I, you know, I do stand-up and, and I perform and, and I can have a bad set and it stings. But it doesn't stay. Now, what what the work we do here on the show and the work I've done on my own game is to minimize the amount of time between the stinging and the staying. Because, you know, I was saying this to you last night at, at dinner about my, my summer of tournament golf. And, mm -hmm. and what I was able to do is, yeah, it's shitty when you make a nine. But how quickly can you go from that mindset, because it stings, yes, to... And that's what professionals are excellent at doing is that, yeah, they, they, well, they'll, slap, they'll snap a club. Rory McIlroy will throw a three iron into a pond. But the next shot, he's able to bring a, a fresh he, – he's able to be back in that moment. So here's the in, – in the world, here's the, so the psychology. You, you may have a momentarily – in the moment, you may be wounded. But if you could move forward, it doesn't turn into a complete mood of resentment. Right. So, of, of course, a bad shot stings. But you can let it pass. You, you can move into acceptance. You can move into peace because there's nothing you can do but the shot that just happened. Um, a lot of people can't do that in the world. Something happens and they perseverate. They live in that moment much longer than the moment owes it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, you talk uh, about which I've not read the book, but I've listened to the podcast Golf from Point A. Yeah, it's great. That, that, that so fits with the world every day stuff happens the question is what allows you to move on and 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 it and it's fundamentally the understanding the past is over you can't change the past you you can't change what's so you you can only accept it and and then move to the next moment uh, easier said than done 100 effect, yeah. effective human beings if, do that that's that's what it is to be effective not that bad things won't happen but that you understand that you you live in, in a certain moment that moment ends you know i've used this uh, phrase quite a bit um reacting versus responding and mm -hmm. i think as a younger man a younger golf man you know it took me a long time to understand that my re I, I was just completely reacting all the time, which is why, you know, I've told the story of, you know, the first club championship at the national nine holes and went to my car. That's a true story. I did that twice because I just couldn't deal with any adversity. Mm -hmm. As soon as it reared its ugly head, which it always does in every round, 
I just couldn't do anything about it. You know, and even last week when I, I played in this tournament for Club Link, you know, there were moments when, you know, I hit some shots that stung. But I'm so much better, and it's a practice. And you said a moment ago, it's easier said than done. But, you know, it's almost you need to be ever vigilant mm -hmm. in the practice of staying present. And one of the things that uh, Ellen Langer said, and, and I thought about it last week, is that in order to be mindful, mm -hmm. it's the simplest of tricks. You just need to look around and notice something. To look for something you've never seen before or notice something in the moment. You know, it's very similar to what uh, my friend Paul Doolin in Orlando always talks about. When your eyes are up at the horizon, mm -hmm. it's hard to start, you know, imploding. But, you know, that idea of trying to look around and notice something focuses you in the present and gives you a chance to say, okay, I just made double, but what can I do now? Mm -hmm. And that really is the challenge of golfers that listen to this show. But I think all golfers have a sense that there's a, a game that they like to play that they don't have access to. I think that we all crave a more peaceful existence, you know, as people. And in the, in the course of playing this game that we spend so much time, you know, thinking about and practicing and enjoying, that sometimes we forget that, that because you made a double bogey doesn't mean you're a bad person. Although, it, yeah, you make a double bogey, and, and it isn't just a double bogey. It's evidence that the life is terrible. <laughs> exactly. And, I mean, I, 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 I've, I'm better. I, I was relating. We were talking last night with uh, Ruth. This is a plug for Ruth. Yeah, listen, you, you just take care of your chick on your own time. Yeah, no, but uh, we <laughs> no, but I had an uh, we were talking about the round I had last summer. Yes. Where I had the round from hell and it wasn't just I was having a round from hell. Every bad shot became evidence that my life was terrible. If I was better organized, I could practice more. And I was even resentful that uh, I was playing from the men's tee and the women I was playing with had tees that, would are, that were 100 yards ahead of mine. And that was even more evidence that life was unfair. And, and we can go down these black holes. But the wonderful thing is that you can also practice the, the opposite. And, and since that round happened last summer, I haven't had a bad round of golf. I've had bad shots. Mm -hmm. I've had terrible scores. But I've had um, the reminder that it's just a game, that you can play it in that spirit, that it, it, you know, a bad round isn't evidence that life is terrible. And it gives you practice in managing your mood. And that's the, the wonderful part. Well, you know, that's kind of what I was getting at. Because, and I, 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 I'm sure you'll, you would have a thought on this. I, I think as we all age, there's a general... You know, I've got less, you know, shits to give. I've got, I, I've got less, you know, I can't care as much as I once did. I just don't have the energy for it. I, I just don't. And I've also learned through doing the show and, and from, you know, the reading I do and the fact that I think about this almost every second of the day, I've learned that, you know, you can diagnose any golf shot. And, and, and what I mean by that is no matter what it's done, whether it's a putt, a chip, or you've pull hooked it, or you've blocked it, or you cut it, there's a, there's a, if you look at it clinically, it's not you that did it. What you did is, Hebron said this, whatever you've done was the perfect swing to produce that result. Right. It doesn't mean you're not any good. It just means in that moment, this is what's happened. And, I, and I've learned to separate me from the activity and in fact you know last week one of my last i think it was my last round i played pretty well all week hit the ball very very well Be like very like a plus golf ball swinging and about 
B-minus golf ball scoring. Right. And I understood. I was a little rusty. No big deal. Get to the last round, and I make five birdies. And as I told you last night, I also three-putted five times. Now, three of those were birdie putts, 10, 12, 15-footers, that I hit four or five feet by, and I, and I lipped out the, the comeback putt which isn't the usual for me. I started to sort of get a little bit like, oh, can I, can I still have three penny? Why do I have to three penny all the time? And then I thought to myself, well, you're doing it for a reason. Like if I, right. I thought, okay, if you were coaching yourself, my first thing wouldn't be, you're shitty at putting. It would be you're doing something that's slightly pulling the ball. So I thought, okay, what would that be? And I, once somebody was putting, I'm like right. looking at my setup. I'm like, oh. I could see that I was a little bit further from the ball than I normally am on the shorter putts. My distance control was amazing all week. I had 40, 50 footers, mm-hmm. hit them to three feet. But on, the, on those birdie putts, I wanted to make the putt, so I hit it past the hole. And I just didn't make the putt coming back. The other two three putts were really long putts over terrain, and you're going to three putt those ones. And then sure enough, I'm like, oh, there's a, it's not a problem with me. Mm-hmm. There's a technical issue yes. that I diagnosed. Now, it corrected itself immediately. I didn't start making all the putts, but I stopped pulling putts. Mm-hmm. Because pulling a putt or blocking a tee shot, there's a, there's a reason. But it has less it, to do all, with... It's all in the question you ask. Exactly. And I love that. When you say that to me, it's what are you... What's the question? Is it, I'm a... Sh- you know, Carl Morris said this to me. You know, if you start to create a story... Right. Then that's the story you you live that story. If you do what I did, and I hate this phrase, flip the script. If I hear that one more time today, I'm gonna punch myself in the head. Okay. But you know what? I I just turned the I shone a light on a different part of it and yes. made it seem like oh, well there's a, there's a reason this is happening, and it does it's not happening because you can't putt, and that's the difference. Well, you, in any situation, there's almost three questions you can ask. Uh, you know what? You know plus minus interesting. What's good? What's bad? What's interesting? And 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 the question we're normally thrown to is that was good or that was bad. Uh, the the third position is hmm, what what just happened, and what can I learn from it? You can say, you know, went thirty yards off the the, the fairway right. Well, that's just. That's in the, the physical domain. The question, I, I completely agree, what just happened? Well, the club face was open or the path was wrong or, or inside out, but it doesn't have to be wrong. It's just so. And, and you don't need to back that up. If, you know, if, uh, if I had had a better childhood, <laughs> I would have practiced more. But, but let me ask you the question. Happen. Why is it that that's our and I want you to finish your thought, but I want to ask this question. Why is that the default reaction back to reacting versus, versus responding? Because as soon as we do that, you miss a short putt. You think, oh, I, I don't have you know, I'm not very good under pressure. Or I'm uh, shitty let putter. Me make, let me make up a story. See, I, I think, uh, you know, I say in some of my workshops that, we're, you know, we're here committed to, to something noble. But before we can get at whatever this particular noble thing we're working on today, we have to get over the fact that our history leads us to two commitments that are always operating. Uh, they're part of our evolution. One is the commitment to look good. The other one is the commitment to be comfortable. That's sort of our grade eight commitment. If you think of what grade eight's like, uh, standing up and reading in front of a class is really embarrassing because you're you're committed to looking good. So so I think we we carry that along. And when 
something happens that that counters that although we'd like to think we're introspective and you know committed to hitting a really good golf shot and learning from it we're we're deeply committed to not being embarrassed and being comfortable and being comfortable and and you need to get in touch with that because you, in a sense i mean if you come at it from a buddhist point of view it's about removing your your ego from this but be, in order to remove your ego you have to understand the ego is operating. You have to understand the commitment is is not to take a good, easy swing at the club. It's not to look bad in front of your buddies or, or reverse it, you know, somehow look great in front of your buddies. Well, it's, it's the thing we were talking a little bit about last night when I said, you know, there's a difference between playing to play great and playing to not screw up or look bad. Yeah. And most of us play in a realm of trying to avoid the pain of hitting it in the water. You know, there's a saying about professional golfers. If you want to be a high-level pro, you've got to be comfortable with humiliation because you're going to hit shots in front of thousands of people that would, most of us would just shit ourselves. You know, we, I, you know I was, we were watching this golf last night, the President's Cup. There was a drive that Justin Thomas hit that looked like he shanked his driver. He just pushed it to the right. Mm -hmm. But for him... That would be like us hitting it out of bounds. Or me, great shot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyone else, we'd be like, wow, you hit it 310, but to the yeah. right? Yeah. But that's it. We're, we're you know, we're, that's the first tee jitters. That's the club championship pressure. Yeah. That's the tournament that you're feeling a little uncomfortable. And, and, and on and on and on. And, and it, what you just said, I think, is a great observation about us, us golfers is that we're always trying to be comfortable and look good when in actual fact the game is there i think to teach us to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and maybe not looking good mm -hmm. because i'll tell you my most satisfying moments as i've gotten older because I, I said this on the show once in my 30s I just wasn't a grinder. I could. I didn't know what that meant. Mm -hmm. and I don't mean grind in that you know self-flagellation, but to continue to try, and continuing to try. The day that you had the little pout festival with Ruth and her friend, what happened was, and I guarantee this is true, you stopped seeing seven as a better score than eight. I, yeah, exactly. And as long as you see anything is better than a higher number, you'll always try. And even on days like I, I've talked over this with my buddy Paul Henrik, even on days when I have an unsatisfying score, whatever that is, 81, 79, 82, I don't care. But I always go home knowing that's the best I could do that day, mm -hmm. and I feel okay about it. Now, I had a round this summer early in the season where I last four or five holes, I snapped an eight iron, I leaned on it, and didn't mean to break it, but I did. And then I basically just gave up the last five holes and shot 85. Now, had I have tried, I would have shot 80. But I knew on the way home, I didn't try those holes. Yeah. And that, that made me sh feel shittier. If I'd shot 85 and I, like, totally tried, fine. That's the best I could do. And I'm not ashamed of it. Mm -hmm. But that's what holds a lot of us back is that whatever your score is, if you're not hitting it that day, now you're not comfortable. You hate yourself. Your soul is crying. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, uh, it's, it's a rich source of conversation. And, and it's funny. I'm sitting on a golf show. Uh, what's my handicap, Howard? I, I don't really like, know. Plenty. Like, no, you, I mean, I can golf in the 80s. Yeah, you shoot in day. the 80s. You're capable of shooting. You, you could... You know, you could shoot in the in the low 80s. You have, I'm sure yeah, you've broken 80, but you probably Once. shoot around 90 yeah. ish, ish on most grown up well, golf courses. Uh, yeah, depends on the course, depends yeah. on the day, um, depends on whether um, my ego is playing or or I'm just playing for a score. I mean, that's one thing I've learned 
I, I hope to learn more of is is to play for a score, not to play to hit the shot that looks good. Um, yeah. We were talking last night about a particular dog leg left where I I hit great shot, shots, but always don't quite cut the corner. Somehow my ego won't let me hit it straight out on an or, easy or to line. miss it on the right hand side. Miss it on the right hand side. Because part of you thinks, well, if I hit this perfectly, it'll go around the corner and I'm in an advantageous spot. But when you don't hit it perfectly on that line, now you're making a bigger number. And it's not that it didn't happen once. I've played this course now a a dozen times. And every time I get to the hole, it's this time I'm going to, you know, hit it just past the corner perfectly. I don't need to do it. No. And, and I'm in this mystery. I mean, I, so I'm a psychologist. Big deal. I still do that whole that way. So there's, there's still work to be done always. And, and the, the thing, I, I'm a little bit older than you. Um, and, and I realize that as you, you age, there, there's always that thing about can I still get better? Can I be better for the physiology I have today? And I can see, long as I'm healthy, you know, you can play into your well into your 80s. And you were telling me about uh, your friend's father. He used to play in the PGA. I yeah, love the Paul fact. Henrik's dad, uh, Paul John. Henrik's dad, yeah. I played with him last summer. He's 89 or 90 years old. And I swear, if you saw his swing, it's in, it's amazing. Yet, and he's still grumbling about a bad shot. I played with a 75-year-old golfer this, this, <laughs> this, this, this summer, somewhat older than me. And uh, a Japanese player, and he was hitting it as far as I was hitting, and he had great technique. Yeah. And at the end of the round, somewhere he said, well, how old do you think I am? And I honest to God, I thought he was 65, 75-year-old is what he mm-hmm. said. So, so I, I think the, the, the joy of having something that you love to do that holds the possibility that you can still improve. I mean, you you age to the extent that you don't see possibility in life. Um, the idea that there's still more work to be done is, I think, amazing. I, I was listening to, I don't know if you know who Jim Collins is, the book Good to Great. I've heard that. So book, this yeah. is a story that I heard Jim Collins. Yeah, he's the guy that says, about begin with the end in mind. Yes. So Collins was being interviewed by Tim Ferriss. This is, I don't know what, when this ha- the podcast was, but Ferris asked Collins about you know, his, his life, his history. And Collins relates to meeting a very famous management guru by the name of Peter Drucker. M- many people will know it. Drucker kind of wrote the book. So it, uh, Collins was in his mid-30s, had just published, or was about to publish Good to Great, had written Built to Last already, and had an opportunity to meet uh, Drucker. Drucker was 85. So it's a little bit like, you know, you get to meet Nicholas, mm-hmm. let's say, and you get to spend the day. And the guy was completely gracious, welcoming. And, and, and after the introductions, one of the questions Collins asked of Drucker, uh, you know, Dr. Drucker, you know, you're 85 years old. You've written 20-odd books. You know, tell me, what's your favorite book of everyone you've written? And he said, the next one. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, you know, Drucker died, you know, six years later and six books later. But I, I'd love to leave it on that note where you say that, you know, you age commiserate with your ability to see possibility and to see improvement, no mm-hmm. matter whether it's golf or, you know, just getting better at Spanish. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the, back to my initial question, what holds golfers back 
and, and you tell, told that beautiful story about asking, you know, anyone play guitar or piano or can juggle. I think that's really the, the answer to my question is what holds us back is not seeing a possibility of a future that doesn't include being the way you are now. Yes. And the, and the, the punchline always to how to create a new future uh, com- comes down to commitment. You, you have to, and, and how you do it is always a matter of you can, many ways to come at it, but unless you can see that possibility and you see it by taking on a commitment, mm-hmm. you, you, you can't just accidentally see possibility on your own if you don't see it. It either takes an act of will which is I'm going to do it, then all of a sudden the world shows up differently. But that's exactly the philosophy, the phenomena of coaching. Coaches do things that have possibility emerge. Use guitar. Um, I began to teach Ruth a little bit, bit of guitar this year, and I started by just saying, look, take these two fingers and put it on these two strings, strum it, you've just made E minor. Mm-hmm. And, and once you make that certain sound, you go, oh, I can do this well, because and, and up that, to that, and then all of a sudden a new world emerges. Right, because it's up to that moment. She might be like a lot of people saying, "Oh, I could never do that." But once you do it simply, you go, "Oh, it wasn't that hard." And then who knows how much how much other things wouldn't be as hard as you'd think they are. And, and that's what I think you do as a golf teacher. I mean, I've done it with real rank beginners. You see somebody sculling shot after shot on the range, and they're brand new mm-hmm. golfers. And, and you might notice something. So you say, try this. Exactly. And they, they do something and it works. And not only does it work, what really begins to happen for some people is they see that l- l- golfing is in the domain of possibility. That's, that's a great place to finish. David Glassman, uh, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Howard. Uh, other than that time, you uh, threw me off the, uh, the steps when I was a baby. Was it you that threw me off or was the other one? No. I, it was the other I, one that I, threw no, me no, off? I, I think you're, you're getting the story where I threw you into the air on like a helicopter. All right. Well, somebody yeah. threw me off some steps. Yeah. That's all I know. <laughs> all right. One of you. Sorry. You were, yeah, you were the other one. You were the other one. You were yeah. the other one. Threw me off some steps, and uh, it was not appreciated. Uh, but this was great, and I appreciate it. Listen, everyone, uh, David Glassman, for all your David Glassman needs, uh, follow David on uh, Anyway, uh, there you go. We'll uh, add this to another uh, year-end, best of, or whatever. Uh, Swing Thoughts, I hope you enjoyed it. Had fun. Howard. Look at you. See? I told you. you couldn't, there's not a question you couldn't answer. It's raining in the park the meantime. Sound of the rhythm, you stop and you hold.